0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
2: What number
3: are we thinking
2: of? Sixty-nine, dudes. Well, <gasps> <gasps> it's nineteen sixty-nine. Okay, walk across the USA. It was another year for me and you Another year with nothing to do It was another year for me and you Another year with nothing to do the domain of the developed connoisseur, exposing the obsessive bondage that very special men and women enjoy over each other with the internationally famous... Philippe Leroy, as sayer, a sadist, expert in bizarre punishments, a complete master of the most exquisite techniques of mental and physical torture. Dagmar Lassander as Maria, his prisoner. Philippe Leroy and Dagmar Lassander. Quite unlike anything you have ever experienced before. The peculiar bondage in which both master and slave are inescapably trapped. You will never entirely forget this revealing motion picture experience.
4: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Elric Kane. Hey, thanks for having me. Our appreciation of 1969 continues with a look at Piero Shiva Zappa's The Laughing Woman. Also sometimes known as the Frightened Woman, the film stars Felipe Leroy as Sayer, the head of a charity foundation, and Dagmar Lassander as Maria, one of his employees, question mark. Maybe she's an employee. Maybe she's just a reporter. She expresses an interest in writing an article about male sterilization. He takes that as a cue to invite her to his house and enslave her. What else is a good chauvinist to do? We will be spoiling this movie, so if you haven't seen it before, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So Kat, when was the first time you saw The Laughing Woman and what did you think?
5: When it came out, Shameless put it out on DVD. I want to say about... 10 years ago. It's been a while now. It's well overdue a remaster anyway. But I actually saw a trailer to it before I saw the film and I was just like, what the fuck is this? I've got to get this film. Then Shameless put it out and I've just been obsessed with it ever since. For anyone who knows my work, obvious reasons. Just the whole sadomasochist thing, the feminism, the Italian art thing. Just everything about it is just... Incredible. And Elric, how about yourself?
1: Well, usually when I sign up to do uh, episodes with you, it's usually something I'm obsessed by in the same way Kat's talking about. This is the first time I ever picked one I hadn't seen before because about – about the same time about 10 years ago i heard about it through a friend of mine when we we're kind of focusing on giallo and i thought that would prepare me for what this movie is uh so my first viewing is for this episode so i'm gonna be as interested to hear your guys thoughts on it as anyone but uh it uh it really blew me away i'd just been preparing a episode on giallo we were going deep i'd probably watched about 12 giallos a couple a couple weeks ago and then and yeah that did not prepare me for what kind of movie this was at all because it's really if it's a giallo it's you know by way of someone like robe Grillet or something it's so different, you know, it's uh, and it's utterly fascinating. And I've kind of on the rewatch, watching it a second time before doing this,
4: a lot of the things started to really click and kind of excited about it. I saw this one probably back in 2000, it was a release that First Run Features did before Shameless put it out. And I know you said that the Shameless disc is due for a, a remaster, but man, it is. Light years ahead of what First Run Features put out, which just looks like kind of a beat up 16 millimeter print, really like faded colors and kind of nasty. And watching the shameless version of this, it was like, wow, because these colors in this movie pop off the screen, especially compared to what I was used to. And it just was night and day versus what I had seen before. And I had paired this and The Blind Beast together years ago because of the large women that are in both of these movies so i'm very excited elric that you're able to uh, join me here to talk about both of these which i'd been planning for years to be a double feature
1: yeah no this it was uh, unplanned on my part <laughs> signing up for these two because i hadn't seen this one so besides the key image i'd seen uh but yes as we as we joked off off
4: camera this one has an opening that the other one didn't and i think that's the key difference The other thing that I was very happy about was that this large woman statue, which is right there in the opening credits, that it is a creation of Nikki Descent fall And I've been a fan of her work and her movie work, which is a strange output. She and Peter Whitehead put out a movie in, I want to say 1970, called Daddy which is really all kinds of fucked up. So if folks have a chance to track that down or the documentary about Descent File, highly recommended. She is a very interesting artist.
5: Which I didn't get a chance
4: to watch. Sorry. You will have a great time watching that movie when you see it. (laughs) It is.
0: Hello, Daddy. Do you remember when I was a little girl and I used to tell you everything about myself? Then we stopped talking to each other, didn't we? How I used to dream I would punish you one day, Daddy, by showing you the whole truth, by opening your eyes to all those things that you refused to see. Now that you're about to fall into that long, long sleep, I'll tell you a bedtime
1: story. I did watch the uh, piece you sent us about the uh, actual sculpture itself, and it was a little heartbreaking when they tear it down, I gotta admit.
4: I have heard that this is a recreation which just seems kind of strange to me that they would recreate that statue how would you do that just because it is such a a major endeavor to set that thing up much less to tear it down I mean how did they manage to do that and plus the 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 Hun statue was set up in 66 this was probably shot in 68 or early 69 So I'm not sure the time difference, like maybe they did set it back up again. But it looks like an exact replica of what we saw in the um, little documentary snippet.
1: And one of the beautiful differences of slashers and giallo or Italian horror is just the attention to production detail and art. You know, the the love of art and fashion and just the level in which how important that design is to these films and what you take away from them compared to, you know, the kind of idea of a cheap and nasty slasher film.
5: There was like a whole movement of these like pop art Italian, I call them Euro cult films, some Jallo, some more erotica like this. This one falls on there. Some people call it a Jallo. I don't really think it's a Jallo because there's not really much mystery in it. But you get like this whole outpouring from the mid-60s onwards of these like incredible film, like with just incredible art in the Melio Petri's 10th Victim, Cedar Man, which we've just recorded the projection booth on with Heather Drain, The Libertine, The Slave, you had um, Tinto Brass teaming up with Guido Creepax for the Jallo Deadly Sweep. A death laid an Egg, Lucio Fulci's Perversion Story, Venus in Furs, Baba Yagam or Creepax and Hanno Cambiata for cheer. Just so much of this incredible art and these weird worlds that just don't seem to exist anywhere. They're just complete fantasy worlds. And we get that with Philip Leroy's house in this. Just this little pocket that lasts maybe a few years, but it's such a, a beautiful... Slate of films from that period. It's probably my favorite period in Italian film.
4: And I love that we have the statue at the beginning. It's showing us the different parts of it. And then it's got that line of men all waiting to get in and to be devoured by the vagina of the statue.
1: I look how unexcited they are about it, too.
5: It's subtle. <laughs> it's a very subtle opening.
1: I think what it represents is inevitability.
4: And that we don't revisit this thing until right towards the end. Well, I guess it's more like in the middle. It's kind of a turning point of the film. So it's it's really neat that they introduced that at the beginning for the credits. And I was like, well, are we ever going to go back there again? And then when it goes back through, it's like, oh, okay. We're tying back to the beginning. This makes sense. And yeah, I think it comes at a very important part of the film. My Italian is not good enough to figure out what's going on in one of the early scenes after the credits when there's the statue and it says uh help poor fellows and it's our main character it's Sayer, right comes out and pries the a off of the front of the words the italian phrase on the statue i'm like i'm not sure what he's doing there can anybody figure that out
5: I have no idea, but I just take that to be something to do with in South Central that he's running over there.
1: It's the guy with the one eye who think he steals it. I think he was an embezzler or something, and that's why. So I I have no idea what the actual sign said, and I was hoping you guys would know.
5: Yeah, Um, no, I don't.
4: (laughs) (laughs) But I figured if he's stealing it, maybe that tells us all we needed to know about the character. I don't think we ever get a name for this guy, and yeah, we – kind of have to imply that he was embezzling from the company he's got a really interesting backstory and he's the one that first sees maria the dagmar lasander character and he looks at her and obviously we know by the end of the film that they know each other but her in this get up this very prim and proper outfit that she's in i think he's trying to realize do i know this person or not yeah, no that
1: that part on Second Viewing was the part that uh like just kind of putting it on again. Those are the kind of moments where you go, oh, no this was really built to be what it is. It's not some twist added to this film. It's really well structured and and you you can only imagine what that story is between the two of them. You you know he was on her list and you've seen his photo by the end but you don't know exactly
4: the interplay what happened between the two and it makes you even more curious. I love the whole thing too with Sayers' Secretary. And just all of the little details that this woman who's in the movie for, what, let's say 20 seconds, maybe? She's got those little cigars. She's in a wheelchair. She's got this mannish look to her. And it's like, what is going on? I, I We'll talk a little bit about the novelization later, but... The novelization goes into such great detail about this one character who's on screen for just a few seconds, and talking about how Sayer cannot stand her and her mannish ways, and that she's got like facial hair if you look close enough, and she hates and he hates those little cigars that she smokes because it again makes her more mannish, and she's such a threat to his masculinity. But I think anything is a threat to Sayer's masculinity. He is such a Oh, man, what a twisted character.
5: He's like the Anthony Dream Johnson of the late 60s. You know, that guy who's putting on the mansplaining conference.
6: Very good morning to you, Anthony Dream Johnson. Can I just ask, what war is this that we're all fighting?
3: It's the war on feminism is the war I'm fighting. And feminists are fighting a war on family, motherhood, fatherhood and family. And that needs to end immediately or as soon as possible.
6: What will I learn if I pay my $999 to turn up and be uh, talked to by yeah. men about how to be a good woman?
3: So the 22 convention is the mansplaining event of the century. That's its <laughs> destiny. It's coming up soon in Orlando, Florida, this May. And I'm only one of the speakers. I'm actually more like Obama, like a community organizer. And they're the top mansplainers in the world. I've been doing that my entire life.
6: So tell me what Since you I was mansplained years old to me over
3: 13 years. I'm quite
6: an expert at being mansplained to. My so spe- just, just tell me what you'd teach my
3: me. My speech. So, well, look, Piers is a fantastic mansplainer. You're in You're good right.
6: company.
3: <laughs> uh, my speech at the convention, one of about 20, so I'm just one of 20 speakers at the event, yeah. is going to be on motherhood first. Right. And I believe that feminists, when they present a choice to women between career and motherhood, it's a fake choice. It's not real because okay. they're pushing an agenda behind it to push them to delay motherhood. And okay, I think most on women, hang not all on, of them, hang but hang most on, women, would be happier motherhood first.
6: I can't turn up to your lecture. I'm a mother with a successful career.
3: I'm very happy for you. That's wonderful. I think All you right. made a great choice. I think motherhood is awesome. I mean, you should have as many babies as you want yeah. and not get bullied by feminists for it.
6: No, but I am Which many of them do now. There are women stuck up for me I not bullied by online. anybody. I had as many children as I wanted and I've got a career, so I'm not sure what you're... You, you Are you telling confused. me that I was wrong?
3: I, I think feminism, as, as Piers has been discussing here or hinting at, I think feminism has collapsed into rampant sexist man-hating bigotry and female supremacism. I don't hate That's any That's what these men. hashtags mean. Toxic masculinity, the future is female I'm not female. Where's my future?
1: OK, let's bring in uh, Janice, <laughs> you know Fiamengo. Mean,
3: well,
6: Janice Fiamengo. Your future you, is mansplaining to women, apparently.
1: Janice Fiamengo, you, you are a, an anti-feminist women Canadian professor. There, there is an argument, uh, Janice. I, you know, I do have issues with the more radical arm um, of feminism. I think some of it is just you know, grotesque. Uh, but at my heart, I am a feminist who believes absolutely in all forms of gender equality. So what is your issue with this... Uh, this premise that feminism is a good thing?
2: My issue with the premise that feminism is a good thing? Well, I, uh, like Anthony, would take issue with the idea that feminism has anything to do with gender equality. Um, If you look back to the roots of feminism, you can see that from the very beginning, feminists
5: argued on the basis of female moral superiority, and that has been very much... Women just offend him all the time, unless they're being really submissive. And I just think it's one of the brilliant things about Italian film, especially from the 60s, is you often get a lot of people who come to it later on misread it or misinterpret it and look at it as misogynistic. But quite often, and a lot of the time in the comedy, for example, you had filmmakers who were really taking the piss out of you know how frail the masculine ego is and how silly men can be chasing their desires and you know how ridiculous the male libido can be and it really plays into that in a way that I've not seen any other Italian film do like it's definitely right on the feminist end of the spectrum I'm not saying those Italian comedies are feminist but they do kind of bring things to the fore, like how, how ridiculous and how frail and how narcissistic Italian men can be. And it's just one of the wonderful things about that decade.
4: And Sayer's ego is, I mean, we constantly see him looking at himself in mirrors. We oh, constantly <laughs> see him checking out his hairline. You know, is he maybe getting gray? Is the hair receding? Him working out and jumping up and grabbing the uh, trapeze that he has <laughs> above his, his
1: path. That sequence is sublime. And it, the, the <laughs> scene strange. that totally reminds me of is uh, Patrick Bateman. Exactly that kind of psyche.
5: I have Patrick Bateman on my notes. He is like a proto Patrick Bateman. So, and when he shows uh, what he's done to the other women as well, and the fact that the prostitute psycho making out she's sick because he plays these gay, there's a there's a lot of American psycho in there.
1: Yeah, because he, he, he can only kind of get off on himself. He's he's so in love with his own physique. He doesn't even notice the other people around him, really. And But that sequence is partic- Yeah, it does seem particularly relevant where he, <laughs> he jumps out on the bar. I mean, it's kind of a
4: perfect one-shot. It's, it's great. Oh, and the framing of that is fantastic. I love the way that this movie looks.
5: Well, the whole thing is just gorgeous. Like, watching it back again for this, because I've seen it so many times now it's one of those films where I just feel like crying because it looks it just looks so good I haven't seen anything else that Piero Shiva Zappa made apart from there was a, an Italian made for Italian TV this uh, adaptation of the Odyssey I don't know if either of you have seen it it was episodic and he did some of the episodes Mario Barva did one I think and Barva did the effects on some of the episodes it's really good but i've never seen anything else by him i don't i've just never come across anything else by him i think
4: which is weird because with a movie like this on your cv you would think you would be Mm. in huge demand to make something else much like this well and i think it's his first film
5: which is incredible it is just absolutely incredible just the attention to detail
1: yeah, sorry, I just had, I just had, I don't know if this is an epiphany, but it just came to me, maybe the guy with one eye had embezzled money from him to give to uh, the Dagmar character. That's what I think, yeah. she had yeah. just ruined him. Okay, yeah, this thing, it's only just kind of <laughs> two days later, coming clear of my brain.
4: <laughs> well, I love this whole thing, how there's this prostitute that's introduced at the beginning of the film, who's, she's got marks on her legs because he's been whipping her, uh, sayer has been whipping her, and... She gets out of the car and goes to another car, and it's not until the end of the film where you realize what that other car is and that there's this whole setup that she is kind of the bait. And then uh, Maria is the one who closes the deal. She finds out everything about these men and then gives the information to Maria, and that becomes like her mechanism for ruining all these men. And I I love that twist at the end. It's fantastic.
5: It's really uh, Life and Loves of the She-Devil as well, which comes much later on, like a dec- dec- two decades later, where you have this organisation of women taking revenge on men. I, th- I love it. I think, it's, I think it's incredible. So different to a lot of the other films that were stylistically similar to it as well. They're, the women are really, really empowered in it, and they're really, really in control of what they're doing. They've got this whole network set up. It's fantastic.
4: His work at the Foundation, it's so proper, and it feels like he's in a castle, like that office that he's in is this huge office and this massive desk that he's at. But then when he takes her after he gets her to come to his house, because he's, it seems like he's got two places, right? He's got, well, three really. He's got his office, he's got the house that she comes to to get these articles, and then the place that he kidnaps her and takes her to. And his apartment is really strange. He's got all of the this artwork that are pictures of different diseases that have been drawn out into these beautiful paintings of cholera and rabies and just everything that you can possibly think of. (laughs) Because he views woman as the next disease. So I think that's what that is, yeah. Then, of course, he drugs her J&B because this is an Italian film. Let's not forget that.
5: Yeah, you gotta have the J&B or it's not really Italian. Before we go past the prostitutes, it's interesting Alrick saying about the connection to the Jallo because that's the one See when you first see that film, that thing with the prostitutes waiting is such a Jallo trope. You, so you go into the film, maybe expecting a, a Jallo film with, you know, women being picked up and all that is really Jallo-esque. But then as the film opens up, you see, it's actually nothing like that at all.
4: <laughs> right. You expect that other car to be, another John or her pimp or something. And then when we see what's really going on at the end, it's like, Oh wow. That's not who I expected to be in that car at all. Yeah. I think that's a great
1: Trojan horse to get an audience of that time and to access the point of the movie, you know,
4: and then not, not focus on the mystery at all, which is great. Yeah. Because when it comes back at the end, it's like, Oh, Oh yeah. I completely forgot about that. That's fantastic. And even when I watch it a second, third time, it's still, even though I know it's coming, it's such a nice little twist of the knife, as it were, to show us that in that way. You're talking about productions and I like the offices because it has the global, uh,
1: all the kind of, uh, Atlas type maps on the wall and all these very boring looking men kind of, you know, mm-hmm. imitating, intimating that, you know, these boring men are ruling the world. But as we know, slowly, uh, you know, we have Maria kind of infiltrating the system. And I think, yeah, it just, it seems really clever on second pass.
4: And I love that he is so threatened because, like I said at the beginning, she is writing an article about sterilization of men. He is just so mad. And I love it. So to go back to the novelization, there's this whole story in there about how somebody wrote an article about sterilizing people in India and that that was probably the best way to go about, or sterilizing men, I shouldn't even say people, sterilizing men in India, and that was the best way to control population. He was so threatened by the article that he took it out of all circulation.
5: His reaction is brilliant. You know, we must maintain the vitality of the man. Jack T. Ripper
2: from Dr. Strangelove. I can no longer sit back and allow... Communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay!
4: Oh, and this whole thing of... Well, it makes more sense to start a program and teach people how to do this and that and the other thing. And to do what you're talking about, first, you need to teach people how to read before you give them literature about, (laughs) about, (laughs) you know, (laughs) about why they should be a little bit more careful when it comes to birth control. And yeah, he just gets so mad. And of course, this is, you know, the prime time for the pill. So again, it's that whole control the woman with the pill and the woman's responsibility is to keep from getting pregnant. We can't put anything on the male role or else that, you know, is just completely heretical to him and to so many other men.
7: Are you personally for or against sterilization? I'm all for it. A man who already has two or three children is perfectly well into a sterilization program. Why should the woman always be the one to have to take precautions, pills, etc.? The pill has no lasting effect, whereas sterilization means permanent incapacity. It's barbarous, monstrous. I agree, of course, the great increase in population must be held in check. But only by means which will do no harm to the potency of the male. It can be done through sound educational programs. A practical appealed responsibility. Publication and definition of the various methods. And if that doesn't do the trick, then there's the proper use of the pill. It is essential... That the fertility of the man should remain absolutely intact.
5: You've got a country drenched in Catholicism. Divorce isn't even legal until 1970. So when you think about it in that context, even talking about birth control and things like that, this is an incredibly transgressive film.
1: And had real issues with censors, right? I believe.
5: Yeah, I think the Shameless DVD actually restored some of the scenes. You can see that the quality is degraded in parts of the film, which is great that they put that back together. I mean, it looks great. I wasn't (laughs) slagging it off at the beginning. I just mean it would be brilliant to see this actually remastered, though, because of those colours and just the... They did Elio Petri's 10th victim, which I mentioned earlier on blue, and that looked gorgeous.
4: Yeah, it can only look better. You know, the like I said, the jump from the one disc to the next was light years away. I would love to see this as a 4K remaster. I think that it would just scream out with those colors. I mean, the Nicky Fall statue itself is so colorful in places, and then his apartment or his dungeon, whatever you want to call it, when we finally get there, the set design, the colors, the framing, everything is just remarkable. I love the use of the one-way mirrors and the placements of things like how she's hidden at times and then shown at others. Everything looks so good in this.
1: Yeah, t- tons of reflections and uh, people putting on their facades and slowly being revealed like layer by layer throughout this film, which is, you know, when you go back through a visual design of something is super impressive. You you see a lot of I like the kind of bave's color pattern that you kind of start with. And it's, you know, to think this is 69 before so many of the films that I grew up loving, you know, from Argento this is before those movies, it, it really feels you could have told me this was from, you know, 76
4: or something and I would have believed it. I love his, I I have it in my notes as Rush Limbaugh, but it might actually be more Alex Jones, his whole thing about women becoming self-sufficient and because it is, it's a conspiracy theory. Him talking about like pretty soon there's going to be a machine where a woman can get pregnant and take the fetus out and put it in the machine so that she won't ruin her figure. You want to rule the world.
7: You've been planning to make yourself self-sufficient. Socially and sexually self-sufficient. I don't understand a word you're saying. Stop this, you're out of your mind. They're already set to collect sperm from the healthiest and more intelligent men. And deep freeze it. So that in ten, twenty, fifty years a woman can pick the child she wants. Blonde or dark. Blue-eyed or brown. Brilliant. Athletic football fan, music lover. What does it matter if his father's dead? The other live men, in full sexual flight, what about them? Does she care about them? Not on your life. All she wants is a test tube of sperm neatly labeled, to be chosen from a rack like a new pair of gloves. And you won't even have the unpleasantness... (laughs) Seen your stomach pregnant
2: and swollen. Where's the fetus gonna just take? You're gonna keep it in a box.
4: It's just crazy how he's going on about this. I mean, this is such a scary thing to him. And you know, you get even one drink in him, and he's gonna go even farther than that. This is him completely sober and just going off the rails with this stuff.
5: It's amazing how in the last few years, and this has happened actually with a few films that we've covered on this podcast, where you'd watch them a few years ago and you'd think, oh, things are really bad then, you know, and thank God things are improving. And then all of a sudden, like the last few years, they've suddenly become really fucking relevant again (laughs) but too relevant
7: female rabbits have already been taught to reproduce by parthenogenesis all on their own without any help from the male and they breed exclusively female offspring and you women will learn to reproduce like that nothing but females a world populated by women alone
4: this is men's rights advocates, you know. This is all of this crazy shit. What, I'm trying to remember that uh, the guy on YouTube who just always is going on and on about like feminists and how they're going to, you know, come and and castrate the entire world of men. I mean, this is nuts. What he's doing here?
5: Well, that Dream Johnson guy calls it female. He says feminists don't want equality; they want female supremacy. Uh, feminists are supremacists now and white men in the minority. It's all that (laughs) bullshit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's scary because on this kind well, at least in America, it's, you know, one Supreme Court judge away from seeming like reality, and 60 years later. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah. yeah.
4: Crazy. 60 years. It's bizarre. It's
5: like we have gone back six decades in the last Mm. few years.
4: Can I make a uh, horrific confession that it took me until – Again, looking at that novelization and on the back of it, it had blurbs and there was a big capital S and a big capital M. And it finally, I finally clicked that Sayre and Maria is basically S and M. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, wow, that was there the whole time. <laughs> and I did. Don't worry, see I that.
1: didn't get it, so you're good. <laughs>
4: okay, shoo. <laughs>
5: The whole S&M thing, though, because, I mean, it's one thing that I love in these European films. You had this huge boom that came probably off the back of Louis Bunuel's Belle de Jour in 67 and carried on up until the early 70s where you had like a pocket of films where you would have women specifically exploring their sexuality with sadomasochistic elements. And it would become a journey of empowerment. And this kind of uses that, but it's, it's a slightly different, it's totally its own thing. But it kind of taps into that whole market of films, the libertine. I mean, you could say Blind Beast is like that. This woman gives herself over. She has this like journey and she changes through that journey to become something else. And it's, even though it's really nihilistic, Blind Beast. It's nevertheless kind of empowering as well. Uh, you had The Slave by uh, Pasquale Festa Campanile and he also did The Libertine. And this is well. They all seem to have that same thing where s and and female sexuality are like a source of power. And I absolutely love it.
1: And yet it took 60 years for America to start dipping its toe in it with the 50 Shades of gray stuff and oh, you just see God, how, don't, yeah, yeah, don't but you see how watered about down that. it is it's no it's fascinating because it's so tame the way they i mean the books obviously did great but then you watch the movies and it's such a tame exploration you're like you realize what people were doing 60 years earlier in cinema in a much edgier much more empowering way it's it's so fascinating you know
2: So strap in for all the steamy action people were expecting from Fifty Shades of Grey, like emails, texting,
4: contracts. This is a contract. Read it carefully. The following are the terms of a binding contract. Contract
2: negotiations.
0: Turn to page 5, Appendix 3, Soft Limits.
2: Non-disclosure agreements. What's this? It's a non-disclosure agreement conditions. I'm not going to touch you. Not until I have your written consent. What? Clauses.
0: I broke rule seven,
5: clause five.
2: And tender missionary lovemaking.
5: We've had like in recent years, like the French film Romance, Peter Strickland's Duke of Burgundy. So people are still exploring those narratives now in in the same way uh chambermaid lynn was another one i think that was a couple of years ago about women discovering their sexuality and discovering these refer aspects because it's it's kind of like the most taboo thing for a female to be aggressive in a si- sexual situation or to i i just think it's remarkable considering they were up against censors as well at the time they really were pushing bars in the late 60s
4: He's got her in bed, and then he lays down in bed, and then the wall raises up. I mean, talk about like just such a a wild setup that he's got in this house, that he's got this wall that divides them, but then he's able to raise it up and shock her that he's in the bed next to her.
5: (laughs) That's so creepy, though. It's
4: super creepy, but what's even creepier is what he's got (laughs) under the bed. What is up that he's got this double that looks exactly like him this is wild stuff and that he forces this dummy on her and has her make love to the dummy i can't remember the last time i jumped in a
1: movie (laughs) i jumped it i actually jumped because i you know i love the movie pin but i wasn't expecting it suddenly when he's in close on her kissing her neck he pulls back she looks up and suddenly there's two of him and it is just creepy it's like one of the best shot cuts i've ever seen
5: mine there's there's the bones of an article in there somewhere because pin you see a dummy sexually harassed as well so you know sexual harassment of of dummies that poor thing because
1: <laughs> yeah and they're and they're both men who can't do it themselves they don't know how, you know they have to use use the dummy
5: it's fascinating and perverse but also really creepy because it does fucking look like him as well
4: it's a really good dummy.
1: It seems to be him saying this is the future of men. Like, we're going to just be – you got you don't need us. You can just have a dummy and get off, you know, with your womanly ways or <laughs> whatever. It's very strange.
5: Which is crazy because somebody dumped on my Facebook – or not dumped, sh- lovingly shared because I'm interested in these subjects – the bionic sex doll, men, male sex dolls for women the other day. And it was literally a few days ago and then I rewatched Feminine Readings, and I was like Jesus Christ that looks like the doll
8: in that article Synthetics is the world's leading manufacturer of anatomically accurate dolls It's here in their LA factory that Synthetics is finally giving women the chance to erect their perfect man every single inch of him
4: You're talking about how these are pushing boundaries and I agree with you But it's really interesting that these movies, even though they are exploring sexuality, they have all these elements of sadomasochism they're really chaste at times, you know, like there is no penetration. I mean, it is almost shocking when we see her breasts, you know, it's just like, wow, what is going on here? And like all the sexuality is implied in this movie. And he himself, the Sayer character, he is super chaste. He doesn't want anything to do with her. Her sexuality is super fascinating, but threatening to him. And he's got this whole like, childhood trauma of the scorpions that he talks about
5: I've got on my notes the fucking scorpion
7: do you know how scorpions make love
5: no just as
7: they are about to reach their climax the female eats the male I saw that happen once when I was a boy oh I must have been 12 or 13 I suppose I thought they were fighting my father explained it all to me it came as a terrible shock i picked up a rock and pounded it pounded that treacherous female to a pulp
1: yeah that was one of the strangest memories to to open up the the killer psyche it's very strange
5: and that explains why he has this whole dungeon and the prostitutes and kidnapping women and got just because of this scorpion and it's like jesus christ He's got
4: the scorpion and she's got the cat that makes love to her. <laughs>
5: <laughs> oh, the cat is amazing. That, that's the other thing on my nose. Best cat seduction scene since Bow Book and Candle. Because the way she turns him on with that cat. For anyone who hasn't seen the film, there's no bestiality in this. No. <laughs> it's just a well, prop. And, and then, on, <laughs>
1: yeah, and when you watch it again, you realize that anything she says might just be part of her game. Part of her, you know, we don't know the truth to anything she says because she's learning his behavior, learns his backstory, and then gives this backstory. So it does feel like, uh, you know, all of this could be part of her
4: performance.
5: I think it is. I think she's taking the piss out of him deliberately and using his vulnerability against him.
4: I was so dumb that on the the first rewatch of this, I didn't realize that she was giving them a foot job at that point, that there was a implied blow job later on when those women show up who are all blowing woodwinds. I'm like, what wait, is wait, cool well, Implied? <laughs> implied? <laughs> you, you, you can't miss that one. Jesus. <laughs> I, I did that time. I that, that was as subtle as Devil's Honey. Oh, man. <laughs>
1: I guess the Italians have something about uh, wind, wind instruments to, to the genitalia. <laughs> yeah.
5: I love that part with the with the horns. That period, sort of late 60s, because you have a lot of jallo films coming out of that period that are like, it's interesting, Mike, you call them chaste. And they kind of are because, you know, it's just on that cusp. When things are opening up, by the 70s, it all explodes. Censorship comes down a little bit. And you have that really sleazy era, golden era of Italian film,
1: Blossom. Like Strange Vice and Miss Ward* or something pops up right around then, right?
5: It all sort of comes in after the Bill with the Crystal Plumage, really. But a lot was happening in Italian film. They needed stuff to get people into the cinemas. And obviously with the Haze Code coming down in America... This whole market opens up for more sex and violence and the Italians are first to get in on that because, you know, they just do everything more. That little period, just when they're testing the the boundaries and you get things like the Umberto Lenzi-Jalo films with the Carol Baker-like orgasmo, they all have these really perverse scenes in them but they can't quite go there. But I find that period the most interesting because they have to get quite clever with how they can say things. So you get things like the the train with the women and their wind instruments and, yeah, and you get all this weird shit coming out of it, but it's brilliant. But a lot of people who've seen the later sort of Italian stuff first and then go back tend to be disappointed that they expect there'll be more tits and stuff. And it's like, well, this was 69 so they're not quite there yet. So it tends to not be as appreciated as much, which really makes me sad.
4: I prefer the tease more to the graphic stuff. So like I said, when she actually shows her breasts, I was kind of surprised. I was like, wow, okay, this is we're going here because I thought it was going to be more chaste and just imply all of these things. So, But I I, I prefer that anyway, you know, give me lingerie to a naked body kind of thing. And it definitely suits this
1: film because it's all through his impotence. You know, it's not till that last scene. So I, I like that it only takes it up to a certain point all the way through.
4: And that he gets so hot and heavy when she's there dancing and she's got that gauze dress, that kind of Lilu fifth element gauze dress thing going on and pouring herself some J&B and dancing around. And we have to talk about the soundtrack to this movie because the soundtrack. Oh, my God, it is so
5: good. I listen to this one frequently. Um, And it's on Spotify, actually, just when I'm writing because it's it's just amazing. I love Stavio Cipriani anyway, but I think this is my favourite of all the soundtracks that he did. And you've got that theme song as well with the lyrics. And you've got the Sophisticated Shake, which is the song that plays in that scene where she's pouring the drink and she's dancing for him and he's behind the two-way mirror watching her. It's just so good.
1: Yeah, the soundtrack I listen to most is Tentacles in general, because the music's so much you know better than the film. And so when I realized it was the same composer, I got very excited. And also, I think I'd heard some of it when Amir came out. I know Amir had sampled a lot of his work, and it's just so fun. It's it's you know that jazz. It's, it goes between jazzy fun, but then can also hit these kind of dread
4: moments too, which is yeah, it's it's really great. The only thing I wish the soundtrack had was the recording of the uh, dirty um, uh, astrological readings, <laughs> which of course reminded me a little bit of Rudy Ray Moore. But those—that uh, is such a strange touch when she's trying to escape the house and she comes up and just hears this recording of these astrological um, sexual aberrations and the stars is what it's called and it's just like what is happening here that is a podcast waiting to happen sexual
1: aberration <laughs> and the stars is. who wouldn't listen to that I know
4: <laughs> Gemini
7: with Mercury on the ascendant will accentuate masochism and sadism if you were born during the early morning hours your tendency will be towards masochism with a sublimation of the sadistic urge
2: Gemini the twin. Favored by Mercury, this bad motherfucker's mind changes quick. So girls, if you want to fuck,
5: don't bullshit it. Fuck him, but fuck him good. Hey, I'm a Gemini. I feel personally attacked by that.
4: As you should. The clothing is great, too. I mean, like I said, she's got that gauze dress going on. He dresses her up like a schoolgirl later on, and there's that whole scene at the um, to, to tie everything together because you've got the music, the costumes, the lighting, all that in the scene where he's making her play the organ and fondling her. And I think that's the closest he gets to being sexually aggressive in quite a bit of the film.
5: But he's too scared, isn't he? He just likes to get on his trapeze and flash his cock at her.
4: Or threaten her with like the the doll that's tied up in bondage. Like when we first cut to that, I'm like, oh wow, he really went for this because there's a match cut between him locking her hands but behind her back and then the hands of this what we end up realizing as a dummy being hogtied and, and suspended. And it's like, oh, wow, he really went there. And then after a while, I'm like, wait, no, that it's not moving. What's happening? And then finally, I realize that he's just showing it to her like, I could do this to you. And he just keeps threatening her the whole time. Like you just talked about how he showed her the photos and, oh, I kill all of my victims. I, I do the same thing as the scorpion. I, I have sex with these women and I murder them at the moment of climax. It's like, okay, dude. And then sure enough, we find out that that's just all bluster and no reality to it at all. But none of it's as nasty as eating marmalade in front of her.
1: <laughs> I mean, that, that was just too much. <laughs> I love that scene. She's got a, you know, she's gagged. It's actually, it looks very much like the kind of Me Too image of, you know, with a, her face as a piece of, you know, tape uh, over her mouth, just watching him. And he's just sitting there eating his marmalade. And I'm
4: just like, oh, I love the, I love the nuance of that. For me, the most disturbing thing was watching her rub his feet. That was kind of gross for me.
5: Well, you know, Mike, you know my opinion on the feet thing, just from the QT films that we've discussed off air.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Don't be telling me about foot massages. I'm the foot fucking
5: master. I, I find the whole foot massage thing just a step too far. That's my marmalade. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <In this. laughs> at least his feet are clean though at clean. Least. Clean.
1: <laughs> I did find the hosing the hosing scene I thought was really you know kind of disturbing you know just the time it takes and it's funny I was watching um, I took all year before jumping into Nicholas Riffin's tv thing that he did for amazon the too old to die young and it's exactly the same scene so i would be shocked if this is not one of those movies that influenced ref and it's a scene with a pornographer and he has a woman he's going to take a photo of and he just starts hosing her down for a long long period of time before getting ready to take a photo uh, you know sexual image of her so it, it was i saw these things within a day of each other and it was hard not to see what he you know his taste it makes sense that this would probably be one of those films for him
4: So it's right in that same area when he is hosing her down and then taking those photos of her. And then that final photo he takes where his foot is on her ass or on her back. And it's just like a big game hunter and his trophy. And it's just so disturbing. God, it's like it's like Twitter in the last year with all these CEOs taking pictures with animals. You're just like, how far have we come in <laughs> the 60 bloody years? <laughs> right. Yeah, this is Don Trump Jr.'s uh, Instagram feed here.
5: I can't wait to see the comments on this episode. The projection booth was good until 2016. Then something just changed too political mike you just started ruining all the films
4: oh i know i know how dare you talk about politics and film at the same time and then we've got the moment where the movie changes completely which is her suicide and it makes him realize that things are real it brings a sense of reality to his situation and then everything changes everything reverses and i love the way that we almost goes step by step through everything that he's put her through. She now is putting him through. So when he's trying to revive her and he's rubbing her feet and rubbing her legs, and we've got this whole thing of her taking his picture and it's great that we're just like shoes on the other foot now. And the movie just changes at that point. And I want to say that's right around the time that we get the idea of the statue again and him going into the vagina of the Hun statue and coming out as a skeleton and that is both funny and scary at the same time
5: I don't find it scary but then, you know <laughs> I don't think it was aimed at me
4: Well, I love the when the skeleton collapses and the skull rolls, rolls across the floor, that for me was just like ooh, that's a nice touch
5: It's subtle, isn't it? <laughs> 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 Lots of subtlety in this will I do love the fact that she uses hyper femininity as a weapon against him. So instead of being like the femme fatale and overly sexually aggressive, she plays on his fantasies of what he wants a woman to be like, submissive and weak and, you know, someone he's able to break. And that's how she reels him in and really weaponizes being outwardly weak until she can go for the jugular it's a wonderful thing and really quite different again to the other ways that we see that used. It's normally a woman will seduce a man, but she will have the upper hand in the seduction. Whereas here it's played on this really subtle level where she's learning about him. And then she's basically presents to him his fantasy, but it's all an act. She's nothing like that as we find out by the end.
1: And the section directly following what you're talking about, I love – on first viewing, I, I was just like, ah, oh, it got really cheesy suddenly. And it's like this romance sequence. But, you know, on second viewing, you realize, again, she's playing the tropes for him mm. because that's what he needs. And he's got a little boy's idea of romance, a little boy's idea of r- what a relationship is. And she's just go, and that's what we're getting to watch. And I think it's r- it's really clever because she knows she has to play – like you were saying, she has to be on the bottom until the, until the exact moment uh, where things get revealed – which for him is too late at the end. And so so the sequence really worked so much better on second viewing.
5: Well, she doesn't have to attack him either. She doesn't have to use violence mm-hmm. against him. I mean, I know you've got the scene with the knife, but again, I think in that she knows the game that he's playing. She goes in there knowing exactly what he's going to do and how it's going to play out. So she wouldn't stab him. She doesn't need to stab him.
1: The other prostitute had probably given her that note about the fake knife and all the little traps, yeah.
4: Yeah, he's going to drug your drink, so who knows if she even really passed out or if that was just all an act as far as that goes. So many men have this fantasy of being the rescuer and coming in and being that— Night on the white horse and taking care of the woman. So she basically serves that up to him on a platter. And it's just this, like, uh, you know, you had me so distraught I committed suicide or tried to commit suicide. So now you get to be my rescuer and play that role. And he just eats it up with a spoon. He eats it up like marmalade.
1: Well, it's also the really disturbing part of that is kind of the rapist fantasy that the person would love them after that, you know, that they would need them. And you, and, and that is that is being explored here. And I think that's kind of the darkest part of it is is that part of that knife is
4: uh, being explored in a way that's actually pretty edgy. It's just kind of a throwaway moment when they go to the castle and they go through the secret passage and start making love in the bed. And then the dwarf comes in. <laughs>
5: <laughs> that whole thing, I I love that, like the dwarf room, and the whole backstory of how the king had that chamber, and he wouldn't, he was like an insomniac, so he called the dwarfs in, in the middle of the night, and they've got those little beds in the other room, and just the whole thing, and then one of this this guy appears in period costume and just looks at them. and they're sat on that bench and she just goes oh we're lost and just (laughs) just the whole mood because like you think this is just so weird this film is so weird and then he doesn't just take her to a normal restaurant it's like a castle where the concierge or whatever they are at the gate are dressed in suits of armor that guy just appears and goes do you need your usual table and then (laughs) it's just like what is this place i want to go there and there's no one else there either there's like no other customers it's just the bizarre most bizarre thing
1: and there's a great still where she passes him a shish kebab and it looks like a giant phallus that he's just staring and weighing up and i love it because it's just a this is the reversal now she's
4: the one holding the phallus at him, and it's kind of great and then the showdown, I was listening to the soundtrack the other day before I had rewatched the movie and I'm listening to it going, wow, this is really very Morkone influence. And I couldn't remember what part of the movie that was. And I'm listening to it going, yeah, yeah, this is totally a uh, fistful of dollars, you know, just kind of reinterpreted. And then when I rewatched the film and I was like, oh, okay, this is the showdown at the end of the movie. This is them in the pool and. Basically it's a scorpion scene reenacted <laughs> which yes. his greatest fear is coming true now In and the edit too the close ups on the eyes it's, oh, the, it's the same editing yeah.
1: pattern of the of a marconi leone type ending yeah. kept expecting blood in the pool at the climax because i thought for some reason i in the first viewing i thought oh this is actually gonna and end with a you know a a dentata moment that (laughs) because in my brain i couldn't work out why he was dying from climax that's never (laughs) happened to me i'm missing something
5: (laughs) to go back because all the little weird things i don't know if either of you watched to the queen the slave So you've got in that two women, one lives as the other's slave, even though she doesn't need to. And it's this weird relationship. And like Philip Leroy in this, the, the main woman in it is, is just so filthy rich that she has all these, this weird shit in her house. Like in one scene, she has a party and all the lanterns are made as her face. That's hard to describe, but there's loads and loads of her little faces all over the place. But she's got this horse, a a mechanical horse in her house, a horse that she just rides, you know. And I noticed there's a horse not as as, uh, elaborate as the one in The Slave in Philip Leroy's pad as well. I wonder what that was about. Was this something that rich people had, just (laughs) like their own hobby horse or something?
4: So strange. And then even at the end of um uh The Libertine when they're talking about uh Lady Godiva and it's like, well, you don't have a horse, and I'm just like, Well, wait till the next movie, there'll be a horse in that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All I know is that Udo Kier in real life owns a horse like that and he calls it John Wayne. Wow. Oh, that's it's one of those amazing. details that you just gotta
4: love in life. <laughs> you
5: just have to, don't you?
4: <laughs> God, I would love to see him ride that horse. And then we've got the big reveal, like when she stands up out of that pool and takes her short hair off because he has cut off her hair at one point to really show his power the whole time I mean, at some point she was wearing a wig. <laughs> <So> yes. <laughs> who knows how that really worked out? But just that you never owned me and this is who I really am. I love that moment. I love the reveal and that it just keeps getting deeper and deeper and just more and more twisted to show just how much in power she was when she goes back into the house and cleans up the pills and you realize that she had never tried to commit suicide. When she goes back to her house and she's got all of those paintings or drawings on the wall of these giant women with the apartment buildings and the race cars and just her. I think they're images of her towering over everything. And her, the, I love when she's like, what is she doing? Like meditating and her servant comes in. And it's just like, your photographs were uh, developed, ma'am. And she starts going through and we realize that she's got a whole scrapbook full of different people that she has ruined. And I love that they're these symbols of power. You've got the general, you've got the priest, you've got the one-eyed guy from the beginning. She had Sayer, And then she has the blank page which is like a to me it's like a blank movie screen like what's the next movie who's the next person going to be that we're going to put into this book and there's plenty of pages left
5: see i would have gone for a whole tv series of this someone could still make that technically you know where she has a different guy every episode and we follow her around that would be cool
1: and every episode ends with the guy coming and dying (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> if that doesn't sell itself in a room i don't
5: know. <laughs> well i mean it's it's
1: timely because we uh you know we just found out a couple of days ago that Harvey Weinstein apparently didn't have genitalia, so this is all i oh, feel like a lot no,
5: of- I <laughs> accidentally read that yesterday oh, it it was one, of the straight,
1: one of those <laughs> most bizarre revelations I think I've ever come across
5: <laughs> i I accidentally read it i didn't mean you know what it's like when you just know and you just and then you're clicking it and then and then I read all the. The stuff about his weird genitals and I felt sick <laughs>
1: ever since You can't unread that, that's the thing.
5: No, you can't. And I was like, why i do- I'm just gonna post about it and make everyone else know about this?
1: Well, it's one of those things that you really don't <laughs> think is real. But afterwards I read another article straight away where a guy's like, Four years ago Mel Gibson told me this about Harvey <laughs> and I'm like, oh <laughs> And if anyone would know Harvey's genitalia, it's Mel
4: Gibson, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Where did he find that? Oh, I don't even yeah. want to ask. <laughs> no, you don't, we don't need to know. <laughs> One of the touches that she does when she's in the house before she leaves in victory that I love is that she sets up the dummy to be looking through that one-way mirror, and that it that dummy is just going to be there probably forever. You know, it, it's such a nice thing because for a hot second I was like, "Wait, you he's still alive?"
5: Yeah, you think it's him for a second, and then oh, it's just like knife, knife, <laughs> isn't it? That ending, it's just like yeah.
4: And yeah, and I love that she's the one because at the beginning, we see this whole thing with a gold pen, where it is, you know, the the prostitute doesn't ask for money that basically he hands her his checkbook and she's got this gold pen and writes out the amount and hands the checkbook back after she takes the check out. And that gold pen is now in uh, Maria's possession at the end. And just like, again, this phallic symbol, right? Of just like, I'm the one with the pen. I'm the one that you write the checks out to. Here's to our next adventure. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages.
8: Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well... AdamNeeve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to AdamandEve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out AdamandEve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at AdamandEve.com.
0: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the 7-Hour Conan episode, the 6-Hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the Projection Booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Projection Booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets isn't the projection booth worth it once again that's patreon.com slash projection booth donate today it's the right thing to do
4: i'm chris cooling from forgotten tv and you're listening to the projection booth the ultimate movie podcast All right, we're back, and we're talking about The Laughing Woman. So I mentioned that this uh had a book. I was f- I was thinking at first that the book came before the movie, but then the more that I looked into it, it looks like it was after the movie. So a novelization of this movie. Wow. Wow, right?
5: <laughs> Which is incredible.
4: <laughs> and it's by an author named Hadrian Keane, who I was unable to find out too much personal information about Hadrian, but looks like he wrote... Uh, another book called Noon and Night, and one called Seventh Summer. And I'm going to have to track down um, Maitland McDonough because it looks like these are more gay porn-type books. So, yeah, gay pulp fiction for Noon and Night, and then I can't find what Seventh Summer is about. Yeah, it looks like I've got an author to explore. And at the end of the novelization in the beginning there's an uh i don't know if it's a note from the author or from the publisher and it talks about how it's based upon you know the movie but the quotes in the last 5 pages are real so i'm like oh my god what is going to happen so i get to the last 5 pages and they are all these quotes from like different health organizations and then a lot from like real hardcore feminists which you know were this was happening right now, you know, 1969, 1970. This is when feminism is really kind of coming into its own. And it's got, uh, quotes from the head of now. It's got quotes from somebody who's in which, which was another, um, I wish I could remember what which stood for, but it's a, another, um, feminist organization and, it's all of the things that would have dr- driven Sayer absolutely crazy. <laughs> all the things that would make these incel guys today just shit their pants because it's basically, we don't need men. We are here. You know, we're just, it's time for us to take what's ours. And yeah, it was absolutely great stuff. And I think it's supposed to be frightening at the time, but I was just like, yeah, you go girl kind of thing.
5: It is interesting to me because I have not knowing why Shiva Zappa wrote this, you can read it two ways. It's either a warning about feminism or it's very, very feminist. Obviously, I read it as feminist, which could have been completely unintentional. It could have been to really scare people of feminists because from the 70s onwards, you had this whole outpouring in genre film few things like the vampire lovers for example massive explosion of female vampires which on one hand you get all the tits and everything which the audience wanted but it's like the castration nightmare because guys were really feeling this they were terrified the women's movement was suddenly you know getting that push and women were becoming more and more loud and so you see a lot of horror films reflect that I'm not saying this is a horror film but it's the same themes it could be read in two ways like either feminists are going to come and track you down and kill you (laughs) or feminists are great and they need to do this
1: and yeah it's funny because misogyny is such an easy uh throw point for all these movies I think for people and it's really a shame with this one because you know where this movie lands and her character she's appealing and I think yeah, as you're watching this character after all these events and she seems almost like a James Bond character you know and so it's very hard to imagine that any director could have made gone through the lengths to make a film like this trying to say this and ending where it ends and think that they were just trying to scare people about woman you know it's it just seems so much more I think there's definitely tensions
5: Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in there, and I'd love to actually read an interview with the director and hear what he was saying. Because you did have a lot of directors at that time working in genre who were exploring stuff like feminism, and they were exploring things like, you know, it's also like an attack on that very bourgeois sort of world (laughs) as well, which you see in a lot of Jallo films. You know, because 69 hot autumn you've got so much unrest in italy at the time with the against the industrialists so you had this whole slate of films that come out that really kind of criticize these bourgeois characters you've just got more money than sense so there's a bit of that in it as well there's just so many things so many and the work of
1: pasolini yeah you know (laughs) you 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 see some of that just traces of that world you know
5: yeah, there's just so much going on in there that it's in, it's incredible. I think it hasn't been picked up by the kind of art crowd because it's cast in that whole kind of erotica field. The, the, you know, the, the association to Rodney Metzger, for example, it's like, it's like on the darker side. So it gets kind of ignored, but there, it seems to be saying so much about those times. I like
1: that Metzger uh, for Licorice Quartet ended up using Kipriani for the score after seeing this one. So I'm like, oh that's great. So that's where the that's where the art continues.
5: Well, it's totally in that mold, isn't it? Like Metzger actually mentioned the Liberty, might mention the Libertine earlier. He produced that one and then made uh Camille. Is it 2000 or 3000? Mm-hmm. I can't remember. 2000. A Licorice Quartet as well, they're all in that same vibe that Euro art erotica, similar scores, just just incredible.
4: Yeah, actually, I asked uh, Ashley West about how Metzger got involved with this one. So I'll, I'll read a little thing that Ashley sent over. Uh, the short answer, Radley got involved the same way he acquired the rights to other European films that he distributed uh, in the U.S. in the 60s. He kept close tabs on new films from Italy and several other. Un- other countries, and especially certain directors that interested him, and he made annual visits to see films for himself. Uh, His brief was finding films that he thought would fit the Audubon profile. Audubon is the production company that put this out. I remember him saying that this was the most perfect fit, but the brief version of the longer answer was that there was more to his relationship with the laughing woman. I sat and watched all the films he distributed with him, but we watched this one on many occasions. It was special for him. For example, this is where he became enamored with Enrico Sabatini's art design work, which Radley used on Camille and Licorice. And when he passed away, he left more ephemera for this film than others he distributed.
5: See, I love that because... I love Radley Metzger and he was like sexuality in his films as well for women was very empowering. So I can see why he loved it. But you've got a similar thing in the licorice quartet. Now I'm thinking about like this woman's lure to this house. You've got the watching of pornography, which also or pornographic stills, which also comes up in the libertine as well. And I don't know if that was just their way of getting around the fact that they couldn't show actual sex scenes, but also comes up in the Jallo that Dagmar Lassander did, Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion, where in that she is the character that Mary is in the film. She is like the demure, submissive type. And there's a lot of s&m and stuff in that is as well so hearing that ragley this was special to him that just makes me really happy
4: it's very nice that this was uh something that he loved and i god i wish i could see some of that ephemera that ashley's talking about do you
1: guys know what Carlo Rimbaldi did on this film? Because I, I have to assume maybe it was the, uh, you know, the double, the pin-like model of himself, because it's not an effect-heavy film, but thinking about, you know, Rimbaldi's connection to, you know, so many, even even some of the early Giallo and creating the dummy in Deep Red, or, you know, obviously, I love Cat's work on all possessions, Zulowski-type stuff, um, but do you, any anyone know? Because that's one of those credits that baffled me a bit. Well,
4: I figure it's got to be the dancing skeleton, right?
5: <laughs> his best work,
1: finest work.
5: <laughs> no, probably. was the dummy? I mean, that was another one of his things, wasn't it? Talking about the the art jalo, those really weird films that came out. Lizard in a Woman's Skin. His effects on that, where he got hauled into court because of those dogs, because they thought they actually killed dogs, tortured dogs to death on the set, and they were just fucking models. So if anyone could pull that off, it would be Rambaldi.
1: And there was one other thing I was just going to – because, you know, I think people are a little more aware of Dagmar's work in giallo and Italian kind of genre stuff. But uh, a movie I only caught up with last year was The Possessed, with, uh, which Philip Leroy plays almost a similar <laughs> character for the brief part of that one. But that, that film's another one of these films that's, you know, before most of the giallo uh, were made. And it's an incredibly atmospheric, uh, very much deconstructing the roles of gender in a small town.
5: The roles that she did in the Italian genre film were really interesting. But she just kind of fell into it. She wasn't really an actor. She was just hanging out with people. I think she came over from Germany. She was hanging out with people. She was doing a bit of a modelling. And it was that time where uh, Susan Scott was another one who, who got into it that way. You just kind of bump into someone at a party and they're like, hey, you know. <laughs> so she just kind of got into it that way, which is really interesting because she, the roles that she played were really good. I think she's brilliant in this. She's brilliant in Forbidden Photos, where she has to be a bit more of an Edward Fennec type in that.
1: Well, I think she has
4: the best death scene ever in House by the Cemetery. It's like one of the most brutal.
5: She's just incredible.
4: I did look up what "witch" stands for, and it is Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell.
5: We need to bring that back for
4: 2020. Uh, their yeah. manifesto is, W.I.C.H. is an all-woman everything. It's theater, revolution, magic, terror, joy, garlic flowers, spells. It's an awareness that witches and gypsies were the original guerrillas and resistance fighters against oppression, particularly the oppression of women, down through the ages. Witches have always been women who dared to be groovy, courageous, aggressive, intelligent, nonconformist, explorative, curious, independent, sexually liberated, revolution. Was that groovy? Sorry, revolutionary. Did they say groovy. groovy. <laughs> Witches are groovy. You know that. Well, now I think Doctor Sayer was right, and I'm scared. I'm going to go nurse my phallus. I'm <bad>. I do have to say, it's really interesting to go through Audubon's film history and to see some of the things that they were releasing in the 60s, 70s, and even all the way back to the 50s. And Kat, in a couple weeks here, I think we're going to be talking about maybe the first Audubon released, which was Distant Journey by Alfred Raddock, which just seems not to fit the purview Mm. of any of these other ones, since it's a horrible uh, Holocaust drama. (laughs) And then, yeah, you start to get into, like, secrets of a French nurse or the warped ones as you go along. It's like, wow, where did Distant Journey fit into this? But it might have been their toehold in.
5: It was great that whole period, though, where you had producers and distributors in the U.S. who were, like, trading in art film and then really trashy exploitation film. And they were just... And you look at some of the catalogs for some of these companies and you're just like, wow, this whole, there were just no boundaries there. At all. Like nowadays, we like to put things in these boxes of like high and low. and But back then, it was like this really fertile period where you could just get anything showing. There was just no divide, no boundaries between, you know, something being high art or low art.
4: Yeah, I think we were talking about that recently when it was how exploitation films could play right next to art house films, and there was that.
5: Great! Can you imagine?
4: Yeah, to go see a double feature of Teresa and Isabel and the Moonshiners.
5: (laughs) It's like, can you imagine? Like, we can't even get any independent film round here now. But I look at some of those old double bills, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ! Their minds must have been blown.
1: I heard, well, I heard Joe Dante a couple of weeks ago Mention something along the lines Like one of the double features Corman Programmed at a drive-in was uh, Caged Heat and Cries and Whispers And it was the first time Cries and Whispers Had really shown outside of the art house And I guess Bergman sent him a letter Thanking him for bringing his work to a new audience And I just thought oh, that's such a great way to see it
4: That's you know?
5: wonderful isn't Yeah, that's so wow. good
4: Alright, we're going to take another break And play a preview for next week's show
3: Pronto regia, pronto Questo è un collegamento speciale. Da uno studio di fortuna vi trasmettiamo le ultime immagini a noi pervenute.
0: Ed eccomi di nuovo a voi. Sono qui per farvi qualche raccomandazione. Se vedete segnali di questo colore, significa che la zona è infetta. Giallo uguale peste. Ma siamo sicuri che questi segnali non li vedremo
2: mai. Togliere i riflettori. via i riflettori, what you want? Siamo dalla televisione, ma chi trasportate? Ma voi trasportate il Papa? It's a secret! We can't save! We can't! Fateci parlare un attimo, forse l'ultima trasmissione per il mondo è importante! Ok, all'ideo di helicoptero! Ti ho seminato! Non è vero! Non è vero! Giura che non è vero! Perché l'hai fatto? Perché l'hai fatto? Perché Perché l'hai fatto? Non avevamo il diritto. Non avevamo il diritto. Il seme dell'uomo ha germogliato. Ho seminato, ho seminato. Il seme dell'uomo ha germogliato. Tutti i figli, i figli dei figli. Ho seminato, ho seminato. Il seme dell'uomo ha germogliato. Diecimila milioni di figli. Tutti i figli, i figli dei figli. 10.000 milioni di figli. Seminato il seme dell'uomo, ha germogliato tutti i figli, i figli dei figli, un milione, un miliardo di figli. Ho seminato.
4: Arrivederci, a tra poco. That's where we'll be back next week with a look at Marco Ferreri's Seed of Man. Until then, I want to thank this week's co hosts, Kat and Elric. So, Elric, what is the latest with you, sir?
1: Uh, we got some, we've got just been doing the podcast. Uh, Shockwaves, we had a really good episode recently, conversation with Isa Lopez who directed Tigers Are Not Afraid and uh, just, it was a really great conversation about how that film came to be. And uh, on Pure Cinema, we, our newest which uh, will be out by the time this is out I think, we did an episode kind of exploring science fiction with Richard Kelly which was really interesting because he's not somebody I've heard, you know, talk a lot in the last decade, uh, post Donnie Darko and Southland Tales and uh, the box so uh, very interesting you know just to talk about a, a favorite uh,
4: subgenre of them and cat what is happening in your world
5: oh i actually know what i'm doing this week because i've right? just had some announcements yay, yay. <laughs> so i've just done a bunch of stuff for arrow i did an audio commentary on the release for hagesisa which is a german folk horror film
1: Uh, One of my favourites from last year. I love. it. Oh,
5: so fucking good, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's it's fantastic.
5: To do commentary on, it was just absolute bliss because most, talking of Bergman, it was like Bergman, Tarkovsky, Zdrowowski, Marketa Lazarova, Czech fairy tale, like literally just all the things that I love. Absolutely brilliant film. Anyone who hasn't seen it, just see it, but don't read anything about it because it's just also one of the most taboo films I've seen. Yeah. It years. goes
1: all the way.
5: Oh, just so fucking good. So there arrow are doing like a special edition with the amazing soundtrack as well. Cause it's got this incredible soundtrack and a poster and you've got a select scene commentary from, uh, the director as well. And also an essay by Kayla Janice on that. So that's really cool. Um, I did two essays for the Sukamoto box set that they're putting out, which is US only. One on Tokyo Fist and Bullet Ballet, and the other one on sexuality in Tetsuo. And I also did a essay for Nico Mastarakis' The Wind. So it's been a very varied <laughs> kind of workload for me recently, uh, I've got a commentary coming out for Kino Lorber on Shirley MacLaine, Vittorio De Sica film, Woman Times Seven. And in, in huge news, I'm also launching a new podcast project called Busted Guts with Mike McPadden or Mike McBeardo McPadden of the heavy metal movies and teen movie Hell fame, where we are going to be covering comedy from any era and hopefully we're going to be introducing each other to new films it's going to be mainly double bills of thematic and so I'm really we're recording our first episode on Friday and I'm really 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 excited about that
4: well thank you again guys for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode you also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.